0: Well, Solomon transitions into Ecclesiastes chapter 7, the, the text takes on more of a proverbial tone. In fact, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, part of chapter 11 is more proverbial than what Solomon has been trafficking in, and that is, is wisdom literature prior to this. Still wisdom literature, just a, a more of a, a prose, than, uh, or a poetry rather than a prose. But Solomon is, after all, the writer of the book of Proverbs, so it shouldn't come as a total surprise and shock to us when we see him kind of slip back into that mentality and that mindset here. But one of the things that Solomon is now doing is he's pivoting. As I talked about last time we were together with chapter 6, chapter 6 was him bringing the the final indictment against this world, that, that it cannot satisfy us, and summarizing that argument and saying, we have to be satisfied in God or we will be satisfied nowhere else. Well, now he's shifting and beginning to put some feet to his argument here to say, okay, so then how should we then live in light of that? What, how should we conduct ourselves? What do we need to be practically doing other than recognizing that all of these things are, are fleeting? They're vanity. They can't satisfy us. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Solomon begins to give us that direction in that guidance. He begins to give us some of the practical uh, boots on the ground to, to these goals that we've been talking about in this series about how can we love life? How should we learn from death? How can we loosen our grip on the things of this world? And, and certainly, how should we be prepared for the, the bema seat of Christ? So, as we get into chapter seven, again, this is, is Solomon basically saying, Look, if you want to know how to navigate life in light of everything that we've talked about thus far, this is the starting place for us, this is the launch point for us. And so let's pick up in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1. Solomon says there, A good name, or a a reputation, is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. A good name, a a good reputation, is better than precious ointment. It's, It's more valuable to have your name considered godly, or uh, that that you would be considered a person of integrity, that it is that you would be considered a successful person, or a wealthy person, or a wise person. Why? Well, he's already told us that all of that is vanity, right? So now he's saying, you know, there is something that that is, is worth pursuing in this life, and it's a good name, a good reputation. But we would say that this is not necessarily a good reputation from the world's perspective, but a good reputation from whose perspective? God's perspective, right? Even though he doesn't state that plainly here, I think that's what's implied. A good reputation, not necessarily from the world, but from the Lord is what is to be chosen rather than precious ointment, rather than the wealth and the riches of the world, right? We want the reputation that when we die and we stand before the Lord and and we are in the presence of God that we hear, well done, and here's the reputation that we want, right? Good and faithful servant that we want that kind of a life to characterize us. And Solomon says that is to be chosen rather than precious ointment. And then he says something that's that's pretty odd here, right? He says the day of death is to be preferred rather than the day of birth. Solomon's not talking here about your death, but he's talking about the, the day of death when you encounter the, the loss of a loved one. He's saying that's preferable to the birth of a newborn child. That's a strange statement for Solomon to make, isn't it? It's an odd thing, but it, it, it flows, it connects, because as we're considering, okay, I want a good reputation with God, what is that going to look like? Well, that's that's really kind of what the rest of this chapter is, is explaining, and he begins right away with this statement that the day of death is better than the day of birth, that the coffin teaches us more than the cradle. And he goes on here and he says, it's, it's better to go to the house of mourning, it's better to go to the funeral, it's better to go to the memorial than to go to the house of feasting, than to go to the birthday party, than to go to the retirement party, than to go to the New Year's Eve party. He's saying it's, it's better to be at a funeral than a party, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Man, we have more to learn at a funeral than we do at any celebration that we could ever attend. Because the funeral brings us face to face with the reality that awaits every single one of us, and that is the end of our lives. And that's why he says the living takes this to heart. For this is the end of all of us, right? There are two certainties in this life. One is taxes, the other is death, right? The only thing that will suspend that is Christ's return for his bride. But all of us will meet our end, and when we go to a funeral, when we go to the house of mourning, that's what we are forced to wrestle with. And that's why the the coffin teaches us more than the cradle. Because the coffin asks us the question, how are you living your life? As we sit there and we hear the eulogies, as we sit there and we hear the the stories of the life that's being remembered, we are led to ask ourselves, how will I be remembered? We're led to think about the reality that one day we will be the one in the coffin, and someone else will be standing over us, or our bodies at least, and, and giving a eulogy about our lives. And we're left to wrestle with the question, okay, what are they going to say about us? What is the life that I've lived so far? From an earthly perspective, what is the reputation? What is, what is my name, right? I mean, that is, that's the end of our development of our reputation is the end of our life. Once you die, that's the period to your life here from an earthly perspective. It's a comma from an eternity perspective, but it's a period here, Right? Once you're dead, once your, your, your earthly life is over, you can no longer do or say or change anything about your reputation. It is what it is. And when we go to a funeral, when we go to a memorial, we're forced to ask ourselves, okay, how will I be remembered? For many of us, I would venture a guess to say that there are certain things about our lives, if we're honest, as we evaluate our lives, that we would probably like to, to change. Even some things now, as you think about maybe your wife remembering you, or you think about your kids remembering what kind of dad you are, or father you are, or you think about your boss thinking about what kind of employee you are, or your employees thinking about what kind of a boss you are, there may be things that are floating around your mind that say, yeah, I I think I would want to change some things to make it a little bit easier for the person that's giving my eulogy to speak well of me. Well, men, as as you think about that, that's what Solomon's really driving at here. The reason why it's better to go to the house of the morning is not just to think about those things, but then to act on those things. To say, what do I want to change about how I'm living now in light of the fact that someday I'm going to die and somebody's going to come and have to give a speech about the way I live my life. First point together this morning is this, make the changes today you'll wish you had made tomorrow. Make the changes today you'll wish you had made tomorrow. We've talked about this so many times already in this series, right? That the only thing that you and I are guaranteed is is this present moment that we are in currently, right? So if we're planning, well, I'll clean up my act down the road, we may not have down the road. I'll I'll, I'll get after that. I'll get to that tomorrow. I'll get to that next year. I'll, I'll, I'll get to that at the new year, right? We may not have that. And we can think about some of these changes even at the, the, the basic level of our daily Bible reading. How often do we miss a week of it and we think to ourselves, oh man, well, I'm behind a week, so I'll just start again next year. Well, what if you don't get to that place? Or maybe you have a, a particular besetting sin in your life that you think to yourself, well, next time will be the last time. Well, what if you don't have next time? Or what if for maybe some of you in the room, you've thought to yourself, you know, I don't know that I really am right with the Lord, but I'm, I'm getting close, and so I, he'll eventually get my attention. What if there is no eventually? See, that's what Solomon wants us to do. He wants us to, to, to sit in the presence of death and ask ourselves, what should I do in light of the fact that this is going to be me, and I don't know when it could be me? As we think about our our reputation, again, this is not primarily about our reputation here from an earthly perspective, because the other thing that the day of death should cause us to think about is not a a eulogy, but an evaluation that's coming. And that's the evaluation that awaits us, Christians, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, where Paul writes that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the, the Bema seat of Christ, To receive what is due for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. And so death should cause us to think about that. In fact, that's where Solomon goes at the end of the book when he says, We must fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Verse 14 of chapter 12 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Man, that should weigh on us when we sit in a a funeral, in a memorial. That should weigh on us more than how people are going to eulogize us. Is What is our evaluation? What is our assessment going to be with the Lord? And we need to help one another in that process. And that's why Solomon continues in verse 5 and says this. He says, It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Right before this in verse 4, he said, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. That word mirth is one of those words that sounds the opposite of what it actually means. Mirth doesn't sound like a joyful word. Mirth sounds like Eeyore, doesn't it? You'd say, Well, Eeyore was mirthful. Well, no, actually, he wasn't. He was quite the opposite. Mirth is frivolity. It's. Happy-go-lucky, it's carefree, it's I don't want to think about anything serious, I just want to have fun, I just want to drown myself in entertainment, I just want to entertain myself to death, and I don't want you to talk to me about any weighty matters, right? That is the, the mirthful person. And Solomon says, look, we need to not be around the mirthful person, we need to be around the wise person, and the wise person is the person that is content to be in the house of mourning because of the, the lessons that we learn there. And now Solomon says in verse 5, those are the people that we need to surround ourselves with. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools, and this also is vanity. I don't know how many of you have been camping before, but if you haven't, you need to go camping because it's a good and godly and manly thing to do, right? But if you go camping and you try to make a fire out of thorns, it's not going to work out very well. And that's his point here. Sure, they'll catch fire, but they're not going to last. And, and that's been his indictment right on, on the whole world so far. It's vanity, it's fleeting, it's here, then it's gone. And, and he's saying that's the song of fools. Man, if, if you surround yourself and all of your friends are, are just simply staying on the surface level with you, if your closest relationships are people that you would say are mirthful people, right? Solomon would say that's, you filled your life with the noise of crackling thorns. The song of fools, it may be pleasant for a moment, but that's all it's pleasant for, is just a moment. And it has no lasting impact in your life. Rather, he's saying we need to have the those voices in our lives that are those that will sit with us in the presence of death and think of, with us, okay, what changes do we need to make? You need to have the, the brother in Christ, he says, who's ready to rebuke you. Who's ready to say, you know, this is something I see in your life that I'm concerned over. And when I observe this in your life, it brings me Pause, and, and it, it, I just I need to bring this to your attention because I I love you. That's what Paul writes about in Galatians 6, yes? When he says, brothers, if, if any one of you are caught at trespass, you who are spiritual should restore such a person in a spirit of, of love, right? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. To bear the burdens is to care about one another's holiness and godliness. And Solomon's saying those are the voices that we need in our lives. These are the, if I can describe them this way, man, these are the, the sober-minded voices that we need. Sober-mindedness is is really the the counterpart to this mirthful mindset. Sober-mindedness is, yes, about not being drunk with alcohol or or intoxicated with with drugs and narcotics, but it's about more than that. It's also about not being intoxicated with mirthfulness. It's about not being carefree and happy-go-lucky and come what may and don't bother me with the serious things of life. You can lack sober-mindedness because you refuse to wrestle with the gravity of death. But instead, a sober-minded approach is going to think much about our responsibility as followers of the Lord. It's going to think much about what God wants of us and from us. It's going to think much about our death. It's going to think much about the return of Jesus. In fact, that's what Titus commends us to in Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2 verse 2, he says that all of us as, as men must be sober-minded. But then he goes on in, in chapter 2 verses 11 through 13, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing with it salvation and training us to renounce ungodliness, right, and to live upright and holy lives in this present age, which is the description of, of sober-mindedness. And then he says this, waiting for the blessed appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that's the life that we need to live. That's, that's how we need to conduct ourselves. Those are the, the people that we should want around us so that as we think about, man, the changes that I want to make today that I'll wish I, I had made tomorrow, that that's a, a community exercise for us. That that's, we have brothers in Christ that are, are helping us in that regard, that are pressing us on in that regard. That your friendship, friendships are, are, are about more than politics and sports and the weather. If you have, if your closest friends, if, if that is the diet of your friendship, then, then, then your friendship is dying on the vine. It's, it's anorexic and anemic, and you need something more substantive. You need the substance of a friend who's willing to put the finger in the chest, and you need to be that friend in one another's lives. Because of our love for one another, and because anything less is the crackling of thorns. Proverbs 27.6 says the wounds of a friend are what? faithful, right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are profuse. Man, that seems like that should be opposite, right? That the enemy is the one that's wounding us, and the friend is the one that's that's given the kisses. But Solomon says, no, the the wounds of a friend are faithful, because he cares about what really matters. Man, death teaches us. Death instructs us. So as we think to ourselves, man, how can I have a good reputation with the Lord? How can I navigate this life that's full of so much vanity? One of the ways, and Solomon's already been doing this with us, is to be ushered into the presence of the coffin because it will teach you far more than the cradle. In this chapter, Solomon is commending, saying a lot of good about wisdom, right? Look down the page at verses 11 and 12. It says, wisdom is good with an inheritance, and it's an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life who ha- of him who has it. Uh, so wisdom is a, a good thing. In fact, flip back one book to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. We just read in Ecclesiastes 7 that wisdom can preserve the life of him who has it. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13, verses 13 through 18, we read this. Solomon writes, "'Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver, and her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace.' She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her, and those who hold her fast are called blessed. Look down at verse 21. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. They will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Solomon is commending to us the pursuit of wisdom because wisdom has a tangible and practical benefit in our lives, yes? Yes? And so as we come back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, one of the things that we need to recognize is as we're asking ourselves, how should we navigate this life, is that wisdom is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's commendable. And it's a general principle that those who live wisely will live longer lives. They will enjoy more good things in this life, more blessings in this life. Is that a hard and fast rule across the board? No. But it's a general principle, I think, that we can all say, yeah, that that makes sense. To live wisely is going to be better for you than to live like a fool. And that's what Solomon is, is commending here in verses 11 and 12. It's a good thing with an inheritance. It's an advantage to those who see the sun, to those who are alive. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Look down at verse 19 of chapter 7. He commends it even further. He says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Man, Solomon's saying the, the wise person is of more uh, it, it has more benefit to him than to have ten Solomons ruling over a city. To have ten Davids over a city. Solomon's saying there's more benefit in living a wise life than even that. See, wisdom is good, but but And and that's the, the word that we were waiting for here, right? But we need to understand as we try to navigate this life that there are times in which our wisdom will fail. Solomon has already told us about those times. There are times in which our wisdom is going to fail to be able to plumb the depths of what God is doing in this world. We need to realize that our wisdom, just like Solomon's wisdom, has its own limitations, He mentions those limitations in verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Look back at chapter 1, verse 15. Ecclesiastes 1, 15 through 18. Solomon just asked the question, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Chapter 1, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. So this answer has already been given to us, see? And God is the one that has made it crooked. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. But I perceive that this is also but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow." Okay, Solomon, which is it? Wisdom is good, and it it makes you better than ten rulers in the city, or wisdom is vexing and leads to great sorrow? Which is it? Is it good to pursue wisdom, or is wisdom a bad thing? And Solomon's answer is yes. Yes. And here's why. Wisdom pursued the way that God wants us to pursue wisdom is a good thing. Wisdom with humility that recognizes that wisdom is a stewardship, as we've talked about before in this series. That God has given us our wisdom to be used for him, right? Wisdom that is viewed as stewardship is a good thing. Wisdom for its own good and its own identity and its own glory. Well, that's where vexation and sorrow comes. And Solomon's explaining to us now why that is. And that is because the the wisest of the the wise on the, the face of the planet, right? Even Solomon himself was vexed because his wisdom eventually ran afoul of the sovereignty of God and his wisdom failed. So we have to ask ourselves then, well, what do we do when our wisdom gives out? What do we do when our wisdom gives out? Well, I skipped over verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, but let's go back because there are responses from a a world's perspective that he wants us to avoid here. In verse 7, he says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness. And a bribe corrupts the heart. So you see oppression and bribery there. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the the patient in spirit is better than the the proud in spirit. The proud person is impatient with the the frustrations of this world when our wisdom fails and our wisdom gives out. Verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger, anger lodges in the heart of fools. Sometimes our response to our wisdom Failing is is to become angry with our circumstances. And then verse 10, here's one, right? Say not. Now, before I read this verse, and and you're already reading it because you're cheating. Say not. I want you to read this in light of our current circumstances. In light of our present administration and a democratic-controlled Congress and the existence of TikTok, okay? With that in mind, listen to what Solomon says. Say not. Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. This is the response of, man, nostalgia, right? Oh, if we were only back in this time, because this time was better than the time that we currently find ourselves in. These are the wrong responses when our wisdom fails. In fact, David Gibson, who wrote the book Living Life Backward, the commentary on Ecclesiastes that I've recommended a couple times in here, he says that these are all forms of escapism that rather than dealing with the problem of the fact that we don't understand a sovereign God, and that's good, we need to be brought to that place, rather than dealing with that. Remember when Solomon said earlier that that God has designed this world to disappoint us? He's designed this world to frustrate us. He's designed this world to exasperate us. Well, when we come to the end of our wisdom, that's where we're at. God has brought us to the end of our wisdom in order to be driven to him, right? But instead, what do we want to do? Well, we want to try to take things into our own hands, right, through oppression and bribery. Or we become impatient and proud, pride and, and proud in, in spirit, and we, tr- we try to, to, to take the bull by the horns and force an issue uh, that's outside of God's timing for us. Or we just become angry over things and frustrated, and, and that works itself out in our outbursts, in our broken relationships and hurt relationships. Or we lose ourselves in fantasizing not about the future, but about the past through nostalgia and saying, man, what a lousy time we live in. Wasn't it so much better back here? And the reality is no, right? The reality is it was just as bad back then as it was now because the problem back then is the same as the problem now, and that problem is a three-letter word called sin, So we need to be careful about how we respond. We need to ask ourselves, what do we do when our wisdom fails, when our wisdom runs out, and we encounter the sovereignty of God who has made crooked what we wish was straight, and we realize we can't we can't make it straight we can't what are we supposed to do now, God? Well, I think the response that Solomon would draw out from us that Solomon would commend to us is... The similar response that, that Job had. And so, men, what I would suggest is we need to sit with Job in the ash heap and express a humble confidence in the Lord, even when we don't understand what he's doing. Remember at the book, beginning of the book of Job, he's lost everything. He's sitting in the ash heap, and his wife comes along. and says, what, is, what does she say to him? Curse God and die. And Job responds with his eyes not fixed on his circumstances. Later in the book, his eyes lower. And that's why at the end of the book, God has to show back up and say, hey, Job, up here, right? But at the beginning, his eyes are fixed on the Lord. And he says, and he makes this amazing statement, right? He says, look, I brought nothing into the world. I'm gonna take nothing from the world. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Still, I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Job's eyes were fixed eternally, not temporarily. And when our wisdom runs out, man, that's what we need to do as well. We need to fix our eyes on God. Point number two this morning is this. Let the limits of our wisdom shift our focus to eternity. Let the limits of our wisdom shift our focus to eternity, to what God is doing. I mean, we live in a broken and fallen world and we are broken and fallen people. We are finite creatures, which means that our wisdom will fail. And we need to allow that to create a longing within us for the next world that is yet to come. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.11 that we are sojourners and exiles in this world, which means that this world is not our home, Right? And so we should feel attention. Our wisdom should fail in this world. We should look at the headlines and say, what in the world is going on? I was driving home last night and I was listening to a hockey game on the radio and it said, hey, join us in celebrating Gender Equality Month. Why can't we just not have April? Like, why It's Black History Month, Women's History Month, Gender Equality Month, and, and who knows what's after this, right? And you look at the world and you say, this world has lost its mind. And that's okay to feel that way. In fact, we should feel that way. What did Jesus say in in John chapter 15? Look, they, the world loved me? Is that what he said? No, he said they hated me. And if they hate me, they're going to hate you. And then in John 17, he's praying to the Father. He says, Father, look, they are in the world, but not of the world and so I'm going to ask that you protect them well why would he pray for our protection because he knows that being in the world but not of the world is going to cause us to run afoul of the world right we are are living in a broken world and our wisdom is broken our wisdom is finite and we are not going to be able to understand everything that God is doing but men be comfortable with that because if, if I can't understand everything about God then that's comforting because then God is not a creation of my own mind if I can put if I can tie bows on every doctrine in every ounce of, of who God is, then he's simply a figment of my imagination. He's not God. There should be things about God that cause us to go, God, I, I don't understand that. I don't get that. How can you be totally sovereign over the salvation of a person and yet that person is completely responsible and culpable for bowing the knee to christ in faith and repentance how are those things both true at the same time i don't know but they are the bible teaches both of them and god's bigger than me and i'm okay with that my wisdom can't understand that and so we need to focus our minds and shift our minds to eternity Uh, men here's a good litmus test to you if twitter makes sense to you you're in a whole heap of trouble if you get on social media and you start just nodding your head with some of the nonsense and the, the craziness that's out there right now and going, yeah, this totally makes sense. Did you guys know that, that recently, as recent as six months ago, it was what, one of the things trending on Twitter was 2 plus 2 equals 5? When we live in a world where math is now racist, we live in a world that has lost its total sense of logic. But there's other times that our wisdom fails, and and those are the times when God does something in our lives that we wish he hadn't, like Job. When we lose someone, when a job doesn't break our way, when a diagnosis comes back with something that we were dreading, and there our wisdom fails as well. We say, well, God, this is not how I would have done this. And in those moments, we also need to shift our focus to the throne and remember that God is wiser than we are. We've already mentioned that the wisdom of this world will not be able to explain the dealings of our sovereign God. In verse 13, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Solomon has already said that phrase when he said that that God placed eternity in the heart of man but so that he may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, God is intentionally bringing us to the end of ourselves to where our minds cannot grasp or understand or comprehend what comes next. And sometimes that happens when that diagnosis comes or when that job fails or when we lose someone and we sit there and our wisdom fails. And, and that's when we have to remember the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 when he says of God, God, your thoughts are not what? Your thoughts are not my thoughts and your ways are not my ways. Solomon gives us an example of this time of of consternation and frustration in verse 15. He says, in my life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. This is one of those moments where our wisdom fails, right? And just to, to put some flesh to this in a way that should be tangible for every one of us, We've seen the Lord take Skip Smith from us recently, haven't we? A man who loved Christ, who loved his family, who loved his wife well. A man not perfect at all, but a man who was pursuing godliness and righteousness. A kind man. A loving man. A man who died as he was helping a a woman push her car out of the street. And we look at that and we say, God, why? why would you take Skip and not take, and I'm not going to give any names on the flip side of this equation because I, I think if we look at our world, we can figure out who those names would be, right? Why not take the evil person, Lord? Why take Skip? Why take a husband? Why take a father? Why, take a, why him and not the, the wicked? Solomon saw that as well. So what do we what do we do with that? Well, he says in verse sixteen. He says the first thing he would recommend is this: be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. For why should you destroy yourself? That's strange. The Bible's telling me not to be overly righteous. Verse seventeen: be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Okay. So the poles have been established by him. In light of the fact that we can't predict God, in light of the fact that our wisdom fails when we try to understand what God is doing, what God has made crooked and we can't make straight, in light of that reality, Solomon is saying, avoid two poles. The the first pole is to be overly righteous. And, And what he's talking about here is a Pharisaic righteousness. A righteousness that says, I want to be righteous because I want the benefits of being righteous. I want to be righteous because, hey, if I'm righteous, I'm going to have a long life. I'm going to get the bank account that I need. My job's going to be great. You're pursuing righteousness as a lucky rabbit's foot, right? You're bringing righteousness like the Israelites used to bring the ark into battle, thinking that it was the box that did something special for them. And God's saying through Solomon here, don't run after righteousness or wisdom thinking that in those you're going to necessarily have long life. If if your motivation for pursuing those things is because you want to have long life and have the money and have all the riches and have the blessings, he says, don't pursue that. Solomon says, why? Because there's no guarantee there. Why should you destroy yourself? You can still be cut down while you're running after these things and you're running after them for the wrong motives. But he also then warns against the opposite pole. He says, so if if you're looking at this world and you're looking at what God has made crooked and we can't make straight, and our, our wisdom fails, he says, don't throw up your hands and say, well, fine then. If the righteous and the wicked both die alike, well, I might as well enjoy myself on the way out. Solomon says, no, don't go that direction either. Why? Well, because we still have a God before whom we will be accountable, which is where he concludes his observation in verse 18, in this section at least, he says, it is good then. Okay, so if I need to not be overly righteous, I need to not be overly wicked, what is it that's good, Solomon? It's good that you should take hold of this. Take hold of what? Take hold of your limitations to understand God. Take hold of the fact that that you can't wrap your mind around it, that he has designed this world so that a man may not find out anything that will be after him he has created this world to frustrate your endeavors to be the smartest man in the room he said it's good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who here it is what's the the next two words there the one who fears god shall come out from both of them from the overly righteous and the overly wicked the one who fears god that's the key man as we look to, to navigate this world and we see that we need to, to, to learn from death and think about how we want to make these changes and go about making the changes and then as we're living our lives and our, our wisdom runs afoul of the sovereignty of God and, and it falls short and we have to recognize and shift our gaze to eternity, man, then as we do that, what that needs to do in our lives practically is to drive us to live a life that is a life marked by a fear of God. Our final point this morning is this, let a fear of God serve as your compass while on this earth. Let a fear of God serve as your compass while on this earth. When we can't understand, when we can't comprehend, when we don't know where he's leading or what he's doing, we can fear him. Isaiah chapter 40 paints a picture of this God Isaiah 40, 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say of Jacob, And speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah was writing to who in this passage? Israel. And Israel was on the precipice of a time where they would be prospering and thriving or no? No, they were about to go into exile. They were about to be carried away. They were about to be in Babylon. They were about to be under the reign of Babylon and Medo-Persia, right? They were about to be in a situation where What was left of Israel was a remnant. No king, no kingdom, no people, no no flag, no nation, right? It was a a remnant. And God was reminding them ahead of this, saying, look and remember who I am because your wisdom is about to fail. Your wisdom is not going to understand what's about to come at you. But I want you to remember who I am. I'm the one who sits above the circle of the earth. The inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Like he says elsewhere in Isaiah 40, the nations are a drop in the bucket to me. They are as nothing. And he says this, look, Youths are going to grow weary and they're going to faint. He says, but here's what I want you to do, Israel. I want you to wait for me. When you don't understand, wait for me. When your wisdom fails, wait for me. Fear me. Know that I am still on my throne and still in control. The one who fears God shall come out from both of these. In the rest of the chapter, again in verse 19, he commends wisdom again. But then follows that up by saying, in, in recounting just the, the reality of this world. Verse 20, total depravity. Did you guys know that's not a, a Pauline thing, that's a Bible thing? I mean, Paul's in the Bible, but it's not as though Paul all of a sudden stumbled upon this doctrine. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. He's confronting us with the reality of the world that we have to live in. Verses 21 and 22, the limitations of wisdom, or sorry, the the, the brokenness of relationships. People are going to slander you. And oh, if you get angry about that, remember the times that you've slandered other people. Verse 23 and 24, there's the limitations of wisdom. Solomon's saying, Look, I've, I've examined all this. Remember the whole book up until this point. I've tested all of these things. I've tested wisdom, said, I will be wise, but understanding all of these things again it's far from me my wisdom fails that which has been as far off deep very deep who can find it out in verse 25 i turn my heart to no one to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of and the foolishness that is madness and i find something more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters this is not the, the woman of folly. This is the, the just the, the evil woman. What does Solomon write about in Proverbs 21, 9? You guys probably have this one written above the stove in your house. It says, it's better to live in the corner of a housetop than with who? A contentious woman. Don't paint that above the stove in your house. But Solomon is saying, look, even, even marriages are... are are broken and falling apart because of evil and wicked women. And we think, well, aren't there evil and wicked men? Yes, but Solomon was writing to a group of of men, a primarily male audience at this point in time. And he's pointing out the problem of sinful women. And we need to remove our gender equality month sensibilities from reading the Bible and just allow the Bible to say what the Bible says. He's just saying, look, there are evil and wicked women that he has seen in the world that have corrupted men. And Solomon is bemoaning that. Why all of that? Uh, Again, in in order to commend us to a faith and a fear of God. He's landing the the plane at the end of chapter 7 here, again reminding us of this broken and fallen world, going, you want more examples of why we can't understand? Here they are. You want more examples of why we need to just fear God? Here they are. And he lists them out for us. We need to let the fear of God serve as our compass. Let me just, as we wrap up here, suggest three ways that we do that. Number one is focus on his will. Focus on his will, which 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 makes clear for us, right? For this is the will of God, your, what's the next word? Sanctification, your Christ-likeness, your holiness. And then, yes, he goes on to talk about sexual purity after that, but that, that concept of our sanctification is broader and bigger than that. And God's will is that you would be like Jesus. That is foundationally the will of God for you to become like Christ. Second thing we need to ask is we want the fear of God to serve as our compass then is if we know the will, we know the direction, then what's my responsibility? Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1 that we need to be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election. He says that we need to supplement our faith with, Virtue and knowledge and steadfastness and godliness, right? That, that we have an active part to play in this whole process of being made more like Jesus. And so as we consider the, the fear of God as our compass, we need to say, what's God's will, my sanctification, what's my responsibility? And I need to get after pursuing those things. And then the final thing that we need to do as we fear God is to focus on his return. Because we want to be the servant that is found doing what the master has called us to do. Those things, men, don't change. His will doesn't change, our responsibility doesn't change, In the fact that he's coming back, that doesn't change. And so when we can't understand what's going on from the 30,000 foot view, let's get down to the... 12-inch view between us and the, the pages of God's word and say, what do you want me to do, God? And that's how we conduct our lives. Ecclesiastes 7, in so many ways, is, is a summary of the, the book as a, a whole, bringing us face-to-face with the reality of our death and then asking the question, how should we then live? I mean, that's, that's what Solomon is doing so much in this book. And that's why it's so good for us to begin with chapter 12, And say, okay, look, the end of the matter, all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Because, what? You're all going to die. And stand before the judgment seat of God. To receive what is due for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. So Psalm then, in chapter 7, is backing the, the truck up and saying, so then how should we live in light of that? What should our life look like? learning from death, shifting our focus to the sovereign God and conducting our lives daily out of a fear of him and trusting that he will guide us and lead us through what is becoming an increasingly nonsensical, crazy, ungodly place. Let's pray. Lord, not a great note to end on there. But the world is becoming, it appears, at least from our perspective, increasingly nonsensical, crazy, and ungodly. And yet I wonder, maybe the Apostle Paul would have said the same thing as he was considering the church at Corinth and what they were facing in the city of Corinth and the culture there. Or perhaps Abraham, as he was hearing Lot recount the things that were going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe he would have said the same thing. God, we don't know. And that's why we need to guard ourselves against that nostalgia, Lord, and, and instead have our gaze shifted not backwards but forwards. Our minds can distort the memories of the past, but certainly it, they, they can't distort what you make clear in your word, and that is what awaits us in the future of, of an eternity with you is going to be so much better than anything this world could offer us. And Lord, we we want that day. We long for that day. It's exhausting to live here. It's exhausting to daily have to battle the flesh. It's exhausting to daily have to to live as sojourners and exiles in this world. And yet that's what you've called us to, Lord, and I'm so grateful that in John 17, Jesus, that you prayed for us. Lord, I, I do pray that we would be found faithful faithful men pursuing what you would have us pursue, knowing your will, knowing our responsibility, and thinking about when you come back, being found doing what you have called us to do. May that be our aim today, and by your grace, may we carry that out today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.